but it is all good. I will improv. How are we doing tonight, collective? Are we doing well? Woo. Oh, it was happening. You guys can watch it. Oh, there is so much going on right now. <laughs> How are we doing, collective young adults? Are we doing well tonight? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just want to thank you and say I am so proud of this community and this ministry for raising these school supplies for these kids going back to school this August. You can give yourselves a round of applause. That is phenomenal. It is so cool to see what the Lord is doing through this ministry. But as we begin tonight, I want to start off with the story. Um, and the story begins and starts off with a farmer. Now, this farmer had just moved to a new town. And he's a humble farmer, doesn't have much going for himself. And in this town, there was only one church. And so he decided one Sunday to check out this church. So he strolls on into church. And then as he's going into church, people are kind of giving him the side eye. People are kind of giving him the up and down. You know what I'm talking about? Somebody looks, goes, see this person? Everyone's, the congregation is just kind of eyeing him, talking to their friends, laughing a little bit. So as he's walking through the service due to his appearance, his clothing, uh, after the service, the pastor comes down from the pulpit, comes down from the stage and pulls the farmer aside and says, son, I don't know where you're from, but in this town, when we come to church, we come dressed up. So next week, what I need you to do is I need you to pray to Jesus and ask him what you need to do. Because the farmer said, pastor, I appreciate that. But the reality is, is I'm just a humble farmer. All I have are these clothes. I have nothing else. So the pastor just reiterated what he told him. He said, just pray to Jesus, and he will tell you what to do. So a week goes by. The farmer shows back up to church the next Sunday. And showing up to church, he's wearing the same set of clothes. People are still looking him up and down. People are still kind of hesitant about him, kind of talking to their friends, laughing at him a little bit. The pastor, just so, so frustrated, comes down from his pulpit after the sermon, pulls him aside to call him out. And he says, son, didn't I tell you last week to pray to Jesus about what you should do about what you're wearing? And he says, yes, sir, you did. So then the pastor says, and did you do that? And the farmer responds, yes, sir, I did. So then the pastor asks him, okay, then what did Jesus tell you? And the farmer responds, well, sir, he wasn't too sure. He told me he'd never been to this church before. Oh, that is not a real story. Hopefully that has never been your experience in attending a church. Hopefully you've never shown up to church and been stigmatized or stereotyped for your appearance and attire. But for some reason, when it comes to the concept of Christianity, when it comes to the concept of church, Christians are stereotyped and idealized as this group of people that believe in order to come to church, in order to show up to church, you got to look and act and talk a certain way. I've been working at this church and at different churches no, and I've never worked at different churches as this church, but I've been to many churches, and there always seems this hesitancy with people that they may sense that they're unwelcome due to maybe the way they dress or their appearance or the way they smell or maybe the lifestyle they're living in. And for some reason, this idea has come alongside Christianity, when the reality is that when 
you need to come to Jesus. You don't need to dress up any kind of way. You can come with your mess, your brokenness, your baggage, your appearance. Jesus takes it all, and he loves you as you are. But for some reason, this idea of having a certain appearance and talking a certain way and acting a certain way, looking a certain way like a Christian is associated with Christianity. And the truth is this, this stereotype is not from the Gospels. As a matter of fact, Jesus spent most of his time with the most down and out, peculiar, peculiar fringes of society people you could ever imagine. He spent so much time at dinner with tax collectors and lepers. He even stayed at the house of a leper. Spending dinners with prostitutes and different sinners, as society and culture would call them, that he would do it so much, he was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard because he spent so much time at dinner with these people. So where does this lie come in from, and why is it perpetuated within Christian culture? Well, I believe, and as we're going through this series, if you're unaware if it's your first time, we're, we're talking through a series titled Formed. And in this series, the premise of this series is to present to you different realities, different things going on within culture, and how they have assimilated themselves or almost become fused with following Jesus. And the truth is, many of these things that have become fused from culture as we know it actually have nothing to do with the Gospels whatsoever. And for many of us, especially as young followers of Jesus... We may be living into more of culture's lies than Jesus' truth. I'm going to say that one more time. For many of us, we're living more and understanding what our walk with Jesus looks like, more from culture through lies than the truth and life of Jesus. See, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you want to look more like him. To be a Christian is little Christ, baby Christ. If you want to look more like Jesus, you have to do what Jesus did. And so through this series, each week, I want to present to you different realities that are facing followers of Jesus within culture that have stemmed within culture these lies and how we contrast those with the life of Jesus. And on that topic, I, I believe for the second week, I want to talk about this truth of appearance. I want to talk about why... Why in church, why when you step into a church, does it sometimes feel like appearance is the first step to get to know Jesus? And I don't mean just if you're good looking, if you got that fire jawline, that symmetrical face and whatever, you do that thirst trap stuff on TikTok. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the way you appear as a human, the way you may dress, the things you may be struggling with. The things people may be able to pick up on when they meet you. The way you may smell. Why does it feel like many times within specifically the United States and Christianity, within church culture, do people feel hesitant due to looking a certain way or talking a certain way or acting a certain way like they're not welcome around gatherings centered on Jesus? It's been said many times, but if a church reciprocates this idea that you have to look and talk and act a certain way before entering the doors, your church will look more like a country club than a hospital. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Y'all ever been to a country club? I've never really been. I've just seen, like, movies and, like, videos. But 
A country club, you have to have a certain status to enter. You have to pay a fee. If you were to go there, everybody is dressed a really specific way. Everybody's very well put together. Everybody has a lot of money. There's a certain attitude and way to be at a country club, and it's very sterile. There's not a lot happening there. Just some old dudes smoking cigars, talking about drinks, going on the driving range, driving their golf cart too much. It's a country club. Paying for $15 sandwiches. That's a country club. It's sterile. It's boring. A hospital, you ever been to the ER? Yeah. I've spent way too many hours waiting in an ER waiting room here in Albuquerque. I can just tell you that much, but right now. If you ever been to an ER, you know what's going on in the ER? People are walking in, their fingers are cut off. They just walk up to the counter. There's blood everywhere. I, I'm friends with a nurse, and he was telling me that when he's working in the ER, somebody came in with their arm bleeding out into an ice cream tub. He was, a, he was a chef. He just walked in. He said, hey, I cut my arm, just chopping away, and I just need somebody to help me. There's people screaming. There's people crying. There's babies crying. There's adults crying. It smells funky. There's throw up on the floor. Hospitals are chaotic. But you want to know something about hospitals. Healing happens in hospitals. Lives are changed and saved in hospitals. It doesn't look pretty. There's chaos. It's kind of funky. But it's where life change and healing happens. And as a community, we have to make the choice and the decision. Are we going to be the kind of people welcoming those who may not fit in, who may stick out, who may appear a certain way, and be like a country club, or are we willing to accept those who may not fit in? And it may be crazy, maybe a little chaotic, there may be some blood, but there's life and healing happening. See, here's the lie that perpetuates within culture that Christians, I believe, have picked on through time. The reality is, within the world culture, it's nobody's fault in here. I don't think anybody's scheming to just be ju judging people based on appearance, but the world is very centered on appearance. Wouldn't you say so? Very much so, statistically, those who are more attractive or seemingly more attractive in the Western Hemisphere symmetrical face, toned body, are accepted easier, or more successful generally in life. If you think about consumerism, constantly we're being sold these different ideas of what it means to have the good life. You ever see those cologne commercials? You know what I'm talking about? There's the guy with the eight-pack strutting off the beach. He's just like, oh my gosh, 10? He's an 11. I don't even know. He's off the scale. It's like Crim's Hebb's worst, worst dream. He's strutting off the beach, just laying down. Then he has this chick resting alongside him. And then they're just on the beach. And then they just have this cologne. It's like, who is spraying cologne on themselves at the beach? You got some insecurity issues if that's the case. This is sold everywhere. If you walk into Walgreens in the makeup section, ladies, right? There is a certain archetype of person that is being sold to you of what to look like. This happens all around our culture, and a lot of it is rooted in greed. But the reality is, is it's perpetuated through a lie. That if you look the right way, talk the right way, act the right way, you can play the game. You can play part in the good life. But if you don't align with these certain values externally, if you're not faking it till you make it, well, you can take your ball and you can go home. So what is the true response to this? If the church is also guilty of this, of almost judging people too harshly on one side, and on the other side, only putting forth on the communications and social media on stages attractive people, what's the response 
from Jesus? Well, I'm glad you asked. It is going to be found in Matthew 25, chapter 25, verse 34. Verse 34. And I want to talk with you tonight through living unhindered by appearance. Living unhindered by appearance. Because this is the way of Jesus, my friends. Jesus was entirely unhindered, no obstacles for him when it came to the way people looked. He would approach men on mats covered in feces and urine and say, hey, what's going on, brother? What's your story? And he'd sit down with him, I imagine. He was not intimidated by the way people looked. He was willing to approach men at tombs with chains and cuts all over their arms. He was unhindered by people's appearance. So how do we as followers of Jesus become unhindered by appearance? I want to outline this text with you tonight and outline four ways we can begin to be people who are unhindered in different ways when it comes to appearance. Verse 34, if you're there, say, I'm there. All right. Are you guys still awake? Are you still alive? Let's go. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. America has come up with some pretty cool stuff, uh, apple pie, cherry pie, okay, uh, hamburgers, yeah, we invented that, but I think the most supreme, top-tier thing we have invented is reality TV shows, I'm telling you something, come on, come on, in the 1970s, somebody cooked that up here in America, said, let's produce this garbage to the masses, and we ate it up. Reality TV is crazy if you have ever seen it. You ever seen Cops, okay? Mostly filmed here in our Q-Town, okay? <laughs> Shout out Albuquerque for being filmed mostly for Cops. You got X Factor, people eating cockroaches and swimming in pools of blood, of pig guts, and doing just the most insane stuff for like $10,000. You have American Idol, you got people standing up, giving it their shot, waiting in line all day. I mean, this is like the mid-2000s, y'all. For those who did not grow up in the mid-2000s, oh my goodness, it was like the golden age of just television. I have to tell you, SpongeBob SquarePants. Oh, I could go on all day. Yes, that raised a generation and it explains a lot. But reality TV is wild. One of my favorite reality TV shows is actually, it's, it's clean, okay? So some of you are like, this pastor is talking about reality TV. I don't know if I can go to here anymore. Okay, this is a clean one, all right? There's a show called What Would You Do? Anybody seen this show before? <laughs> it's hosted by the man with the smile, John Quinones. Oh my goodness, this man has charisma like no other. If you're not aware of What Would You Do, WWYD, hashtag. 
The premise of the show is they put this situation in public and film people live. I don't know how they get away with that, but they do. And they pick somewhere like, I don't know, like Applebee's at 12 p.m. on a Tuesday because that's where like the really right-thinking people of our society are dwelling. And they situate a family or a group of friends or just people in public and just have them talk like in the middle of this restaurant and there's this one episode where this group of friends is staged in the middle of this Applebee's or somewhere and they get ice cream and one of the friends plays around that he says hey I'm allergic to peanuts please do not put peanuts in my Sunday." then he says now I have to use the bathroom just top tier grade A acting so he gets up to go use the bathroom and the friends audibly are saying And then the audience has to wait to see what the restaurant is going to do. It is just insane. And there's, like, grandmas coming over and, like, berating them. And, like, it's wild. What would you do is a wild concept because it's asking the question many of us ask. What are people actually like? When nobody knows people are paying attention, when something crazy happens in public, which is honestly just like living in Albuquerque, can we just be honest? I feel like I'm daily on an episode of What Would You Do? Just over here at the West Side, I'm like, someone made me feel me. John Quinones, please come out right now. But it's that question of what are people really like? If you want to summarize this passage that was just read, you could summarize it as Jesus asking, when no one's around... What are you really like? When no one's watching, how do you treat others? This passage is contested in scholarship a lot. There's many, primary two different viewpoints about what it, this passage is really referring to. And in order to really explain this, I would not be doing you justice as Bible teaching people if I didn't explain really what's going on in this passage. So what's happening right now is Jesus is ending what is called the Olivet Discourse. Turn your neighbor, say Olivet. Someone's going to name their kid that. Olivet. Some of you may be named that. It's okay. The Olivet Discourse begins in Matthew chapter 24. If you're just like going above and beyond, don't read it right now, but you can go this week and read it. It's prompted, and it begins this discourse by Jesus on the Mount of Olives, prompted by his disciples, because at one point, Jesus is by the synagogue, by the temple, and he says, each stone from this building will be cast down. And then he just walks off, because that's like what Jesus just did. He just would say crazy stuff and then walk away, because he's God, right? And the disciples are like, this dude just literally said that our, our place of worship, everything we believe and trust in will be just desecrated and destroyed uh, okay like we need to go ask him so they, they go with him to the mount of olives and they ask jesus hey that crazy stuff you said back there what were you talking about by the way jesus loves when we do this jesus loves when we ask him hey what the heck is going on in this passage i'm reading leviticus there's all these things jesus what does this mean he loves to answer our questions. So he begins this long discourse. This two chapters is just covered in red lettering from the voice of Jesus, just explaining the end of all things. And if that scares you, like, oh, man, I actually entered, like, apocalyptic cult without knowing that what is going on. No, 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 no. Okay. What Jesus is outlining is that soon there will be an end to forms of worship and religion as we know it as people, and he is ushering in a new way to be connected to the God of the universe. This is what the sermon, really the gospel of Matthew is all about, is the kingdom of God. 
And so Jesus is outlining, and specifically in Matthew chapter 25, he ends with this stark, serious story. He's been giving parable after parable, and he ends with this story that's almost chilling. Many different people disagree about what specifically Jesus is talking about. Some people believe that Jesus is referring to the final judgment of all of humanity after the tribulation mentioned in Revelation 20. You can go read that if you like. It's wild. Some people believe this is Jesus' final judgment after the tribulation of judging the earth, of those who were faithful and those who were not. Some people believe this is more of a John 3.36 thing. This is more about judgment after you die. The reality is this. Whatever stance you may take, the reality is this. No matter what this interpretation is giving off, no matter what this interpretation is implying, there will be a judgment at some point for all of humanity, and how we treated others matters to Jesus. How we treated others matters to Jesus. If you just want to contextualize all of what Jesus is saying, separate those things. What matters to Jesus is how we treat others. Now, you may say, Nick, that sounds a little bit like works. Sounds a little bit of works, saved by works. How we treat people matters where we go. Well, not necessarily. It's not saved by works. But if you're saved, your faith should work. I'll say that one more time. If you're saved, your faith, it should work. If being a Christian doesn't make you a nicer person, you need to adjust something. This is outlined in James 2. If you're like, I don't know, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. James 2, chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed. That would be so savage to say. Oh, I'm just going to say it right now. But does nothing about their physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, it is, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. So Jesus is sharing that if you follow Jesus, if you follow him, there's a certain rule of life. There's a certain practice you should put into play when it comes to getting serious about your faith. So much so that there will be judgment based upon how we treat other people. But there's a catch. Some people read this, and at the end, did you pick up on it? It's my brothers and sisters, the least of my brothers and sisters. Okay, Jesus has mentioned brothers and sisters. In Scripture, brothers and sisters, especially when Jesus would use the phrase little ones, he's referring to his disciples. So people... They'll read this and say, ah, here we go. We don't need to do anything for anybody. We're not doing handouts. People can go pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Unless you're a Christian, then we're going to help you. Okay. I would answer that question with this. How do we know who's a Christian? Do I look like a Christian? Do you, do you think I'm a Christian up here because I talk certain ways? Can you judge who is a, a Christian based upon their appearance and how they seem externally without knowing them alone? No, you can't. Many of us do, and that's why Christians are seen as judgmental. Ah, yes, we're getting somewhere. Okay, so if Jesus says how you treat other followers of Jesus and care for them matters to me, 
but we don't know who's a follower of Jesus, what should be our response then? We should be equally good to people because we never know if they're a follower of Jesus or not. Again, I will read to you Hebrews 13. You say, this guy is wearing way too tight of pants, and his shirt's way too short. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm going to tell you what I'm talking about. Verse 1, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison. And those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Okay. Textual part done. We've, we've understood the groundwork. We've done the hard labor of me explaining that all to you. So now we're stuck with this question, right? If how we treat people matters, especially how we treat other followers of Jesus matters, if we never know who is truly a follower of Jesus or not, who's truly going to heaven or not, only God knows that, how are we to act as followers of Jesus? If we can't use appearance alone to judge people and to guess where they're at with Jesus, then how do we respond to this? Again, I am so glad you asked that question. So good. Wow. The first step is this. I believe we need to become people who are unhindered by the destitute. Unhindered by the destitute. Let me read to you verse 35. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. What does this list of needs sound like? This just sounds like the basic needs to just survive as a person. Okay, I don't know how much hydro flask you don't drink. I don't know what your sleeping schedule looks like if you're up playing Warzone all night and going to work at 5 a.m. I don't know what it looks like. But there's three basic needs all of humanity is required to have to, like, just exist, right? It's oxygen, first of all. It's water. It's sustenance, food. And then it's shelter of some sort. You cannot survive in the elements alone, hence why, like, our mortality rate has gone down and we live longer now, right? See? You need these three things in order to just survive. If somebody is desiring and needing food, water, shelter, you would say they're in a pretty destitute situation. Wouldn't you say so? That's a pretty hard situation. I think we, as Albuquerqueans, I don't know if that's a phrase, we're no strangers to this, my friends. It is all over the city. We are no strangers to seeing people in destitute situations. Either they placed themselves there or they were put there by their circumstances. Either way, they're destitute. No way around it. So Jesus' response to destitution, I would relate it, we're going to get a little psychological, to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You ever heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Psych 101, that class you regret taking because there's way too much science. And Haslow's hierarchy of needs, Maslow, not Haslow, I just made that name up. He says there's physiological needs in order to just survive as a human and to thrive and flourish as human. There's physiological needs, just basic needs you need met. Then there is safety needs. You need to be safe in the environment you're in. And then the third most middle part is love and belonging. There's two more, and they're kind of like weird ideologies. I don't really believe in them. But those three are the primary basis foundation of, high, of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. See, 
you could say what Jesus is doing right now to his disciples is saying, here's Jesus's hierarchy of needs. Jesus's followers' hierarchy of needs. And it starts with providing basic needs. The basic needs of humanity need to be met. So who's better equipped to meet them than followers of Jesus? But if we're to meet these needs, we need to begin by being unhindered by the destitute. We need to learn to when we see somebody who is in a destitute situation, they have stuff all over them, they're maybe not on their right mindset, right? Be safe. Don't go out of your way and, like, risk your whole safety situation. But I think we're a little too shocked a little too easily when we see somebody on the side of the road. I think we're a little too shocked when we walk past people. We're maybe going to the mall, consumerism, and there's somebody sitting outside the door, and people are just throwing dollar bills at them. It's like, hey, what if we got to know the person? What if we asked them their name before throwing money at them? Maybe they have a story. Maybe they have circumstances. Maybe if we become people who are not so afraid of the ugly truth of reality and people's circumstances and sin, we can begin to meet those needs in our community. Wild thought. The next thing is this, and it coincides with being unhindered by the destitute. We need to also begin to be unhindered by the unappealing. Unhindered by the unappealing. This is what Jesus goes on to keep saying in verse 36. He says, I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. So Jesus begins by outlining basic needs that people need met in our society and day and age, differentiating through all of time, okay? Don't pull that card of, well, that was for that audience, and no, don't start with me. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. You're a disciple. So if Jesus begins saying, you need to help meet people's basic needs, I would categorize this area as coinciding with Maslow, nut job that he was, but Maslow's hierarchy needs and love and belonging. I believe this is what fits that category. See, these aren't needs that are basic to survive. You don't need somebody to visit you in the hospital to survive. Maybe statistically there's some difference to that. I did the background research. I don't know. Same thing with prison. I don't know if somebody visiting you in prison changes your prison sentence, you know? I don't know if giving somebody clothes helps them live a longer life. These are questions that we ask because there's first a set of basic needs, but I would say these are needs that are almost soul needs. These are almost needs that need to be met for people just to be treated like a decent human being. I think there is a great stigma in the United States against people incarcerated. I think we look at them and the statistics regarding them as if they're subhuman. They're made in the image of God just like any of us. I think we look at people at the way they may dress and the way they may attire themselves and look at them as subhuman. I believe as American Christians, we have fallen short of this responsibility. I believe as American Christians, we need to do better about seeing people, even though the circumstances they're in, may be unappealing. It may be unappealing to go visit somebody in the hospital. It may be unappealing to visit somebody, join a prison ministry, and talk with people in prison. It's unappealing to do these things. It may be unappealing. You see somebody shirtless on the street, giving them a shirt off your back. That's unappealing. But Jesus says, hey, whoever you treat this way, it's as if I'm there. It's as if I'm them. I think the greatest example of somebody who just replicated this process 
is Mother Teresa. People joke about being a Mother Teresa, but she honestly was a beautiful human being. If you're not aware of Mother Teresa, I did a little biography on her before prepping this, and this is what her biography states. In 1950, Teresa founded the Missionaries of Charity, which was active in 133 countries in 2012. The congregation manages homes for people who are dying of AIDS, leprosy, and tuberculosis. Members take vows of chastity, poverty, and obedience, and also profess a fourth vow, and I love this, to give wholeheartedly free service to the poorest of the poor. Isn't that just beautiful? That's, this is why this figure known as Mother Teresa, she devoted her life to doing this. And you may be asking, Nick, I'm not Mother Teresa. I'm not in those circumstances. I even know how to start doing that. That's okay. I'm going to outline for you another way, third step, of how we as followers of Jesus can step into this. So we understand we cannot be unhindered by the destitute. We cannot be unhindered by people's circumstances that may seem unappealing. The third thing is this, we need to be unhindered by attention. If we read in verse 37, it says, Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or eating clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? See, these Christians are responding, saying, Jesus, we didn't know we were even doing any of these things. We were just following you. Where were you. When were you there? I think in the moment we're living in right now culturally, everything could be recorded, hence as we've learned through the years. And with everything being recorded, every good deed someone does almost becomes virtue signaling in and of itself. Everything is virtue signaling. Well, I'm posting the right thing because I'm sharing the right thing and I'm on the right side of this. And if I don't share anything, then violence is silence. Uh, Everything is about how I appear to believe in something. But the difference between how you appear to do something and how you, what you actually do is not caring at all about the attention you may or may not get for something. You may go give food to somebody who's homeless, maybe pass them every day, and maybe just don't post about it. Allow people, and we need to allow ourselves to be unhindered by attention. I believe much of what's driving an appearance-focused culture is an attention-focused culture. Maybe we as followers of Jesus need to be the kinds of people who are unhindered by gaining attention. We don't need fame. We don't need people to recognize us. We're just here to serve Jesus and make his name known. I think William Barclay, a theologian and commentator on this passage, puts it well. He says, God will judge us in accordance with our reaction to human need. His judgment does not depend on the knowledge we have amassed or the fame we have acquired or the fortune that we have gained, but on the help that we have given. Who you help and how you treat people matters to Jesus. Don't let attention and status and what people may or may not have to offer you, right, because we've all done something like a favor for somebody and like, oh, you really need it. And right when I need a favor back, I'm going to ask for it because I helped you. We all do it. Maybe we can begin to step away from that mindset and more into the mindset that Jesus outlines in Matthew 5.14. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 5.14. He says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Let me see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You say, wait, that contradicts. You said not to let anybody see what we're doing. 
See, this is the difference. Doing it for people to be seen versus doing it for Jesus and doing it to make Jesus known is different. And Jesus even says, you're the salt of the earth. At that time, the purpose of salt was to add flavor and to preserve a meat. Jesus says, we're here to preserve society that without Christians, to be honest with you, would rot away. We have a responsibility as followers of Jesus to step up to the plate. The last thing is this. We need to begin to be unhindered by the least of these. Become unhindered by the least of these. Verse 40, the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. The least of these is a beautiful phrase that is just repeated on and on and on through the Gospels. It's almost like Jesus was trying to drive home a point about the least of these. The least of these are those who are down and out. The least of these are those who do not have it all together. The least of these are those who have nothing really to offer but their life. The least of these are the marginalized. The least of these are the outcast. This is exactly the kind of person Jesus was attracted to. This is exactly the kind of person Jesus wanted to follow him. If you look at the team Jesus compiled of 12 disciples, it's a bunch of least of these losers, okay? I'm a least of these loser. I'm proud to be a least of these loser. It's a bunch of people who have no business spending time with the creator of the universe, the king of the universe. But Jesus calls them up to it, and he invites them into his fold. I want to ask you, have you ever felt like a least of these? Have you ever felt like a person who has nothing to offer anybody? Have you ever felt like nobody sees you? You may be here in this room right now in a room full of people and you feel lonelier than you ever have. You may walk into a conversation and everyone's laughing and joking and you try to have input, you feel intimidated, you feel shy and when you talk, nobody cares or listens to you and you just feel like you're a shadow just evaporating. My friend, I wanna tell you, you feel like a least of these tonight. I don't care about your circumstances. I don't care about how you may identify or come from or lifestyle you're in, Jesus has a seat for you at his table. Jesus has a seat for you at his table. If you're at least of these in the room tonight, I'm raising my hand. Jesus has a seat for you at his table. He's going to ask some really hard things of you if you want to decide to follow him. It's going to be really difficult. You're going to have to give up a lot. You're probably going to have to give up the lifestyle that you committed to, but there's nothing that's better than it. That's all there is to say. Can we be the kind of people to invite the least of these into the presence of Jesus disregarding appearance? Can we be the kind of people who we look at somebody, we see them as a human before what they stand for, what they identify with? Can we see people as God sees people? The rest of society is hindered greatly by appearance. My prayer is that this church, this gathering, this community may be a group of people who are unhindered by how people present themselves. That all we care about is people's souls and that they know Jesus' love. Can we do that? Yeah? Father, thank you for caring for the least of these. Lord, there's been so many least of these 
throughout history. Lord, may we be the people, God, right now, may we be followers of you who regardless of people's social status, what they have to offer us or their influence or their appearance, that we'd love them because you love them, you loved us. Lord, may we get with people in their mess. Lord, may, may we step into people's circumstances like you stepped into ours. And it may be hard, it may be uncomfortable, it may be dark, it may be difficult, but Jesus, you're within us. That, Lord, we don't need to come to a church service or auditorium to experience your presence. Your presence is within us already. And, Lord, you call us to be that presence in this world to make your name known. So, Jesus, convict us, challenge us, call us up to be committed to the least of these. We pray this in your name, Father. Amen. Let's worship.